Let's take our Bible and go to James chapter 1. I love, love the book of James. As you're turning to James 1, I just want to tell you what I have told a couple of people this week. I am in for the time of my life in the book of James. I've never taught the book before. I've never preached through the book before. I've read it. I enjoy the book. I I went to seminary and heard parts of this taught. But this is great. Every day, every week is like going so deep in God's word and I benefit from it. And I am so thankful for the privilege of praying and studying and exegeting and bringing together my research to give you a sermon that I hope is helpful and beneficial for you. I want to preface everything I'm going to say today with this, and it's kind of a not a profound, it's an important statement, and it's this. The important statement is this. You have to get this text. I believe that what we're going to look at today is the very foundation for the whole book of James. If you miss what I'm going to preach and what we're going to look at here in James 1, you're going to not have the ability to live out all the commands of James. And there's a lot of them that he's going to tell you to do. This section today is like, how do I do this? How do I live this out? I knew that going into the book, and this week in my study, it has only reinforced how important these verses are. So let's read it. James 1, verses 16 through 18. The title of my sermon is Born Again. It's what you need in order to endure trials well. James 1, follow with me, beginning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Again, O oh Lord, help, help me to preach with power. Help this beloved congregation to put away all distractions, anything that could take our minds away from Christ and his word and help us to hear the word, to hear the truth, And that your people would be blessed by the truth that we hear. And Lord, for those who are not believers, save them. Save them, O God, irresistibly, sovereignly, eternally, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In the mornings, when I get to church for my sermon preparation, I drop off my computer in my bag of commentaries here in the office, and I go down the road to Tillis Park. It's one of my favorite times of my sermon preparation process. I don't have my commentaries with me. It's just me and the Lord. And I love my times praying for my own soul and interceding for you, church family, by name and worshiping the triune God. I love my my times of prayer, sometimes reflecting on different parts of the gospel 
that we have been saved by. But inevitably, every day when I'm on the walk, and it could be hot, it could be cold, as long as it's not raining, I'm out there. Sometimes I've been caught in the rain, but usually I'm not there when it's raining. I will inevitably pray through the sermon text that I will be preaching, and I preach it to my own heart. I I work through it in my own soul. I preach it. I'm kind of the weird guy walking who's sort of talking to himself and and, um, praying to the Lord, of course, and seeking his face. But I love this time of year in a particular way because, of course, the trees are changing colors and the leaves are beautiful. It's just a wonderful, wonderful time in my prayer walk. But not only that, at Tillis Park, at least, they're putting up the Christmas lights for the winter wonderland. And I always am entertained as I'm walking and praying and I'm watching all these workers and they're, they're, they're putting up lights and they've got machines and they've got lifts and all these people putting lights on the trees. I mean, the highest of branches and they're wrapping the strands of life to secure it. So when the wind comes and the snow and the ice and all the storms of the wintertime, they don't want the lights to move and they're preparing for a wonderful winter wonderland. And they get it all set up and they move on from one tree and they go to the next tree and begin the same process over again of putting on the lights. But you know what's so amazing to me, and kids, you'll get this, kids, the lights will not work unless you... Plug it in. You have to plug it in. You could spend all day long trying to make the tree look beautiful and putting the lights on, but if you don't plug it in, it's not going to work. Without the power, it's not going to do any good. It's going to have no ability to shine. It's not going to have the function to shine unless it is connected to power. The same is true with the living God and living for God. Living for God in this world. You and I can put up all the great things on the outside of our life and hear the commands of God and all the great things that we need to do to shine brightly for God. But you can't live for God. You can't obey God. The Bible says in Romans 8, you can't even please God unless you're plugged in to the power source. Unless you're born again, unless you're regenerated, unless you have the life of God in you. And Jesus calls that being born from above or born again. One Puritan writer wrote a book on this, Henry Skugel, and he said it's a wonderful definition. He called it the life of God in the soul of a man. Well, that's what it is to be a Christian. It's the life of God in the soul of a man. That is the new birth. That is regeneration. Regeneration cleanses a sinner from his iniquity, and it washes him of his filth. It also infuses you with divine life. It infuses you with the ability and the power to obey God. It literally is being born all over again. It's like being a new creature. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This has to happen. It has to happen to enable you to obey God. It has to happen to enable you 
to follow God and live out the commands that he calls you to do. Now, in our text, in James chapter 1, verse 16, look at how James carefully teaches so that you will know and not be deceived. Do you see in verse 16? Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. I love Pastor James. He's so practical. This is the brother of our Lord. It's one of the earliest New Testament letters that has been written. It's probably 10 or 15 years after Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing an early Christian letter to the, one of, some of the earliest Jewish Christians who have been scattered because of persecution. And James says in verse 16, it's a very pastoral command, don't be deceived. It's like he's going to start a new unit. He's a good pastor. And he says, I love you. And I want you to know the truth. And you can't miss this. You, you can't be deceived about this. You, you can't reject this. You can't be ignorant about this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And what Pastor James is going to do is he is going to give you two very important truths that you need to know. You need to know it. And I suppose if I'm using a building analogy, this is like the foundation. You have to know these two truths because you can't try to put brick after brick after brick building the Christian life if you don't have a foundation that's firm and secure. And the two truths that James gives to us is the foundation that you need to follow him. Two truths that you need to know. Number one, you need to know the reliable goodness of God. You need to know who God is. The reliable goodness of God. And second of all, James is going to say this. You need to know the regenerating Grace of God. Oh, yes, yes. You need to know that God is good. You need to know who God is. And you need to know that you must be born again. You need to know what God does to a soul in giving new life. Again, if I could make this so, so important in your heart and mind, this passage, I'm absolutely convinced, is the very heartbeat of the whole book. This is what will enable you to live out all of the commands, and there's a lot of them, in this book. So, what do we have to know? The first truth, if you're taking notes, let's just begin at verse 17 here. You need to know the reliable goodness of God to you. The reliable goodness of God. Now, do you see it there in verse 17? You know this verse, and we've read this verse, and we've prayed this verse Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is good. You remember Psalm 34, verse 8, that wonderful psalm, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 135, verse 3, praise him for the Lord is good. We read in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 19, no one is good except God and him alone. And when we come to verse 17, we are reminded, we are taught, we are instructed about this very foundational truth that Pastor James wants you to build your life on. And it's this, you need to know the reliable goodness of God to you. Notice in verse 17, let's just begin with the gifts. Look at what God gives, the gifts. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. It's from above. Every good, every perfect gift. In the original Greek, the words are short, they're emphatic, and they almost rhyme together. James is is so creative and clever and literary in his genius of putting this together so that the believers will not forget it. We remember rhymes. Boys and girls remember rhymes. James did this. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from God. You know what that teaches? God is the fountain of of all goodness. He is the fountain of all goodness. God is the spring of all that is good. He's the giver. He's the source. Maybe in Amazon terms, he's the storehouse of all that. It all comes from him. It all comes from God. All goodness originates from God. Let me put it the other way. There is nothing that is truly good that exists outside of Jesus Christ. Nothing. He is good in his creation. He is good in his preservation. He is good in all of the provisions of life. God is good in the consummation of the world because we're living in a world that is not the way that God originally created it. But one day there will be a consummation where all things will be perfected for his glory. God is good in his gospel. He is good in his gifts. Do you believe that God is good? Oh, this is one of the great medicines for the Christian going through a life of hardship and trial and suffering and persecution. We need to know that every good thing and every perfect gift comes from above, from God. Well, who who is the one above? We've seen the gifts. Well, what about the giver? Look at verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Now, let me give you the original from the Greek. From the Father of the lights. It's not singular, it's plural. He's the Father of the lights. You say, well, why do you bring that out? Because every Jewish ear that read this would think of Genesis 1. Genesis 1. It's a very Jewish Old Testament phrase speaking of the heavenly lights in the sky. God is the good creator, and he's the giver of life to the lights above. The sun, the moon, the stars, all the celestial beings. Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights. Genesis 1.16, God made the two great lights. Psalm 136, verse 7, God made the light, the sun and the moon, for his love endures 
forever. You think, well, why would James write that? Why is that important in verse 17 to know that every good gift comes down from the Father who made all the lights? Why that? Because he's about to contrast the unchanging character of God with the changing nature of lights and shadows and reflections. Verse 17, we read, Every good gift comes from God, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So think of the lights, the lights above, that have their movements, and they have their shadows, and they have their changes. It's not so with our God. He never changes. James is not trying to give some scientific treatise here. He's just simply making a point of the constant motion of the heavenly bodies to make a point about God. God doesn't change like the heavenly bodies do. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Our family is a beach family. We love going to the beach. So imagine that you're at the beach... And there's someone next to you who sets up their beach chair. And in their beach chair, they've got a water bottle they put in that beach chair. And they have a little umbrella they twist in the sand. And that umbrella, they put it up and it gives them a little shade and a little refuge from the hot sun. It's a beautiful day. It's sunny. It's wonderful, perfect weather. And that man next to you is in his chair, his beach chair. And as the waves come in and the waves go out and they come in and go out and then the seagulls are flying over, over, overhead and then there's some children that are playing in the background, that man that is now sitting in his beach chair falls asleep. And an hour goes by and he's still sleeping. And a couple of hours go by and he's still sleeping. And then three or four hours go by and he's still sleeping. Finally, he's Awakened, and he realizes that he, when he fell asleep, was under the shade of the umbrella. Now, because it's been so long, he's outside of the shade of the umbrella. Why? Because shadows shift and change. God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, don't change. You get that. I get that. We understand these illustrations. Everything changes in this world except for God. He doesn't change. He never changes. And we call that the doctrine of the immutability of God. He's not mutable. Mutable means you're moving. He's immutable. He is the unchanging God. And because your God is immutable, Christian, you can have the assurance of your salvation. Because God is immutable, you persevere because God faithfully perseveres and preserves with his always sufficient grace. Because your God is immutable, Christian, you can put your finger on the text of scripture and you know that my God will never fail me. Christian, because your God is immutable, you can rest in the immense, strong, unchanging love of God for you. Get this. In heaven, he can't love you more than he does right now. 
At the moment of your salvation, when you came to faith, he can't love you more in eternity than he did at the moment of salvation, even in eternity past before you were even born. Why? That's the infinite, immense, unchanging, strong love of God. Because God is immutable, you worship the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is always excellent, always supreme, always good. Quite simply, Christian, you know, my God is dependable. He's dependable. And what James does is he reminds his people, he reminds the persecuted Christians, the scattered Christians, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. And everything in this world changes, even the heavenly lights above. But God does not change. That exposes the errors of a lot of bad theologies around this day. One would be process theology that God is sort of maturing, and God is growing, and God is in process with us, like us. Not just process theology, openness of God theology. The openness of God theology teaches that God doesn't know all the future, but he's learning like we do about the future. That's heresy. A third bad theology that is exposed with this doctrine of immutability of God And this is so prevalent. It's man-centered theology. Why? Man-centered theology teaches, you know what? God exists for us. He exists for me. He is adapting and he's changing with the times. He's changing with the cultures. One of the arguments that we hear this so often is, well, that was cultural back then, but not anymore. Times are different. The Bible needs to be reinterpreted. He's not a me-centered God. He's not a changing God. No, no, no. The Bible says that there is no variation, no shifting shadow with our God. The ultimate good thing given is the gospel. The ultimate good thing given is the gift of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That Jesus would leave heaven, come to earth, take on human flesh in order to save his enemies. And then he would be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, and obey the law in every single stroke. Where you and I have disobeyed in every single stroke. And he lived a life of ministry and miracles and preaching, proclaiming that he is God come in the flesh and that he is the only Savior for sinners. Jesus suffered for sinners. He died in the place of sinners. He paid the full debt for sinners. And then he was buried and he was raised from the dead, conquering death, conquering Satan. And then he, 40 days later, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand to make constant intercession for us. What a gift. And the gifts don't change. They don't change. They don't shift. And because that's true, Christian, we ought, to, we ought to receive this afresh. We ought to thank the Lord for his gifts. We ought to praise him for his gifts. We ought to obey him for every good thing that he gives. 
you know, if I could just maybe drive this home a little bit more with some application. So the theology is good, immutability of God. Satan knows that. So how does this affect us? How does the immutability of God affect us? Well, number one, we don't want to doubt God's goodness. Remember, when God brings that trial into your life, remember God is working all things together for good. That phone call, that illness, that death, that conflict, that unexpected circumstance. Don't doubt God's goodness. Second, don't despise God's providence. Don't despise his providence. Why? Because every moment in life is from God. He decreed it. He planned it. It can be hard. It can be uncomfortable. It can be painful. It can be trying. It can be refining. Don't despise the workings of God, of providence. Third, we don't want to diminish God's timing. Nothing is early with God. Nothing is late with God. There's no bad luck. There's no happenstance with God. Nothing is unplanned. He plans all things. Another practical application is Number four, don't disregard God's wisdom. What does that mean? In your hard trial, you can rest in God. You can't rest in our political leaders. You can't rest in your economic stability. You can rest in God. You can. And so Pastor James, as he's laying a foundation for believers, he wants them to know two truths. You need to know the reliable goodness of God. The sun is shifting. The moon is shifting. The shadows are shifting. James is not giving a scientific treatise here. He's saying, you see the shifting shadows. But God never does. So we see who God is. He's good. He's immutable. He never changes. Second of all, if you're taking notes, you need to know the second foundational reality. And the second builds on the first. Because we just saw the reliable goodness of God. Now, number two, James wants you to know the regenerating grace of God in you. You can have no power to obey God unless, like my opening story, unless you're plugged in to the power source. You got to be plugged in. You got to have power. And we call that regeneration. Let me ask you a question How does God make someone alive in Christ? I mean, how is a person saved? Let's just make it very simple. How is a person saved? And and how then does a Christian obey God? And, And how do we live a transformed life so that we can obey God? And the answer found in verse 18 is you need heart change. Look at verse 18. Notice what James says. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know what you need? You need Jesus to say, like he did in John 11, Lazarus, come forth. We need him to say that spiritually. 
It's like what Jesus said in Mark 5, 41, when he took the dead young girl. She was just a girl. And Jesus took her by the hand and he said in Aramaic, Talitha kum, which means little girl, rise up. And she did. At a funeral in Luke chapter 7, at the big city of Nain, there was a funeral procession walking by. And there was a, a mother and she was weeping and she was sad because her young son had died. And Jesus went up to the coffin and he touched the coffin and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man got up. Luke seven fourteen. Those who were dead are given life. And they come to life again. That is exactly what God does in the heart of a dead, wicked, unbelieving sinner to give them new life and save them. Now, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this new birth. Let's talk about the regeneration. Because in verse 18, there are many little ways, many little phrases that we need to look at together. So if you're taking notes under this second heading, let's understand first the meaning. The meaning. What's the meaning of regeneration? What what is it all about? Ezekiel 36, verse 26, defines it as the removing of a heart of stone... And then it's the divine implanting of new life. It's like you're spiritually as dead as a stone to God. And God does that internal spiritual surgery, and he takes out that lifeless, cold, stony heart, and he puts in there a new beating heart that loves God and will obey God. Or it's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It's called the washing of regeneration and the renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John said in 1 John 5, it is the one who has been birthed from God or born from God. James 1.18 uses such an amazing little verb. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us. Forth. I suppose if we were going to do a word study on this Greek word, it's the word for birth. In the exercise of God's will, he birthed you. Well, let's think about that for a minute. A baby in the womb, we could ask those who have been pregnant around here, you could speak to this. A baby in the womb doesn't knock and say, I'm ready to come out. They may knock, but they don't knock and say, I'm ready to come out right now. Why? Because the birth happens to the baby. The baby's passive, totally passive in the whole process. It happens to them. It's the exact same in the new birth process spiritually. We don't come to God and knock on his door as an unbelieving sinner and say, God, I'm ready. Regeneration is the cleansing from sin. It's the enabling power to now obey. It's like Ephesians 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead, he made us alive. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God in the darkness said, let there be light, and there was light. In an instant by the divine word. Well, so it is spiritually. In the darkness of our spiritual hearts, God speaks. Let there be light and there's light 
instantaneously. This is what God does in the soul of a man. So the meaning of regeneration, it's a divine work. It's a work of God. It is a miraculous work. Oh, don't miss this. I mean, this is a greater work than crossing the Red Sea. That was was easy. God, through the prophet Moses, said, lift up your arms, and God parted the sea. In the new birth, and when Jesus came to die for his people, and the whole gospel enterprise, it required the death and crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God. And yet God in his amazing, miraculous power does that in our hearts. It is a divine work. It is a miraculous work. It is an instantaneous work. The very moment of salvation is always an instantaneous work. Never a process, but it's always an instant that God accomplishes in the soul of a man. It is a permanent work. It can never fade. It can never be taken away. It is a transforming work. All who are born again are born to new life, and they will obey the Lord. That's the meaning. The meaning is birthed. We're birthed by God to new life. Well, a second word that we could jot down is the word motive. So if we're going to understand in this second heading here that you must know the regenerating grace of God, we know the meaning of it, but now the motive. So why? You say, preacher, why do I have to be born again? Here's why. Because you'll never go to heaven unless you're born again. Those who are in heaven are those who have been born again. It's required to go to heaven. It's required to go to heaven. Why? God could never allow someone to go to heaven who has a filthy, ungodly nature. They have to have a new nature. A second motive for the new birth is without it, you have no life. You're just living in a perpetual state of deadness toward God, death toward God, darkness, enmity, war against God, hatred toward God because you love yourself and your sin. Another motive to be born again is without being born again, every person is living right now under the wrath of God. It's like, it's like God is like pushing down on the sinner with his wrath, and one day the fullness of it will be unleashed in hell if they're not born again. Another motive to be born again, it's the only way to please God. It's the only way to please God. It's the only way to obey God. It's the only way to live for God and to glorify him. And being born again, let me just give you another motive, another reason to be born again. It's the only way to overcome the world, the sin, the devil, and your flesh. You need the life of God. Parents, quick footnote for us. This is why we have to pray for our children. They can have the catechism memorized, and I hope that they do. And they can sit under preaching of the word, and they can be in family worship with you every day, and I hope that they do. But head knowledge is not the same as a transformed heart. And we can't change the hearts of our kids. Or of any other loved one or friend or coworker or neighbor or relative. We can't. Only God can. And that's why we pray. That's why we pray. 
We overcome sin and the devil and the world with a new heart. And another motive is is we just ensure, we must ensure that you are born again. Because without it, you have no hope. No hope. You all know the man Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. He wrote, And Can It Be? And so many hymns that we love. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When he was in college, he gave a book to his good friend, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a churched man. George Whitfield knew about God. George Whitfield even prayed a lot and read his Bible a lot, even shared the gospel some. And yet Charles Wesley gave George Whitfield a book by the Puritan Henry Scougal, The Life of God in the Soul of a Man. It's a short little book. You can read it online probably in an hour today. It's not very long. After reading that book, here's what Whitfield said. I must be born again or I will be damned in hell. And God used that book to save his soul. He knew so much about God. He had done work for God, but his heart was still cold toward God. And in reading that book, the Lord used that to awaken George Whitfield to new life. We must make sure that we are born again. So the the meaning of being born again, it's like birthing. The motives of of being born again, we have to see that this is the only way to go to heaven. Third, let me give you the accomplisher. Who does this? I mean, who does the work of saving a soul? Who does the work of being born again? Look at verse 18. I want to show you this. This is so cool. In The exercise of his will, he. Let's just stop there. He. This refers to God, the Father. By the exercise of his will. Now, if I were to come to you and say, will you come to my birthday tomorrow? And you say, sure, I will be there. Well, you you might come, and maybe you won't come. You might get a flat tire on the way, and maybe something will hinder you. That's not the idea of will right here. Uh, The better translation of the word will in verse 18 is the divine decree from heaven's almighty. Now, there is a word for will, and we want this to happen, and we will this to happen, and God might will something to happen. This word, though, is a divine decree from heaven's almighty. In the exercise of the divine, unstoppable will from heaven's throne, he brought us forth. So who's the accomplisher? It is the absolute sovereign act of God. Objection, somebody might say. Maybe we could call him Mr. Churchgoer. Well, I've always been in church, and didn't I believe in the Lord? And we answer to that objector, well, sure you did. It's because God rebirthed you first. And that's what enabled you to believe on the Lord, just like God did with Lydia in Acts chapter 16. The Lord opened her heart, regeneration, in order to respond, faith, to the things preached by Paul. Objection, Mr. Churchgoer might say. Yeah, 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 but but I put my faith in Jesus at the meeting. 
Sure you did. John 1 verse 12, to all who believe, to all who receive him, he gives the right or the authority to become children of God. See, I believed. And we say, you're right, you did believe. But the next verse, John 1 13 says, you were born not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but you were born of God. Well, Mr. Objector, Mr. Churchgoer says, yeah, but, but I chose God. Well, in John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Well, Mr. Churchgoer might object and say, no, 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 I'm saved because I believed. I prayed. I made the decision. I'm a Christian because I put my faith in Jesus and We say, with all due respect, sir, you are saved because God made you alive in Christ. And as a result of that internal work, you are now able to believe. You see, regeneration always precedes faith. You can't believe until God makes you born again. Why? Because you love yourself. Christ is not glorious to you. You're not as bad as you think you are. Or you don't think you're as bad as you really are. God must regenerate you. And that precedes saving faith. God is the sole accomplisher of regeneration. You're not saved because of your faith. You're saved because God made you alive. And because God made you alive, now you have a new heart and you see your sin. And you see Christ as the only remedy. And you see the peril and the danger that you're in if you live outside of Christ and you cling to him by faith alone. Well, you could only do that because God made you alive first. Fourth, what's the means? The means of regeneration. The means. How does this happen? Oh, this is such good theology, but there's so much practical application here as well. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of God's decree or his will, he brought us forth. How? How does he rebirth you? What is the means by which God does it? By the word of truth. God tells me, 2 Timothy 2.15, to study, to show myself approved. Rightly handling the word of truth, the Bible. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that all of God's people are born again by the word of truth. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that we preach to you. How are you born again? It's by the word of truth. We also read... In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5, when the Apostle Paul is praying for the believers, that there's a hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope which you heard in the word of truth, that is, the gospel. How does God regenerate people? He does it when they hear the word of truth. When they hear the gospel, when they hear the truth, when they hear the word of God, when they hear the truth of scripture. Isaac Ambrose was a Puritan. 
He wrote a book on regeneration, and he asked this question, how does God spring forth the flower of life? How does he do it? How does he spring the flower of life? Answer, he does so by the seed of the word. There's nothing here about dreams, feelings, sinners' prayers, Now, God, God can use different means, but what is the one primary means by which God regenerates a soul? It's not a feeling, it's not an experience, it's not a dream, it's not a vision, it's the Word. He uses the Word. Application Christian, proclaim it. Proclaim it. And you might say, well, I'm not real good at speaking. Then get a gospel tract and give them out. Maybe there's a stranger at a gas station or a stranger at an exit ramp when you get off the freeway and they're asking for food or money or whatever. You can give them a gift bag. Give them a tract. Give them the 30-second gospel presentation that I like to call it. You roll down the window, they're your audience. Give them the gospel in 30 seconds before the light changes and you go. Give them the word. Why? Because God uses his word to rebirth people. God does not save people apart from the word of God and apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian, we sow the seed. Christian, we sow the word. Christian, we give the word. It could be a letter. It could be a text. It could be something on social media. It could be a conversation. It could be a gospel tract. It could be an open air sermon on a street corner. It could be a one verse from memory that you say to someone. And you might reflect later and think, man, that was an absolutely confusing gospel presentation that I gave to them. You ever been there before? I mean, it didn't even make sense to me. How's it going to make sense to them? We've all been there. God uses his word. So when we go to the abortion mill and we proclaim the gospel, we can't link with Catholics. Well, they want to save babies, so do we. But we're not there first and foremost to save babies. We're there first and foremost to glorify God, to proclaim the gospel, because that can change the heart. When we do that, oh yes, we'll offer help to women. We love them. We care for them. We'll help them. We want them to know the love of God. Why? Because we sow the seed. We give the word of truth. We give the gospel. Why? Because it is by the exercise of God's decree that he rebirths people to new life by the word. Oh, so know this book. Memorize the scriptures. Give the gospel. Let me give you a fifth word. So we've been looking at this doctrine of regeneration, the meaning of it, the motives for it, the accomplisher, the means. Number five, the purpose. So why? Why does God rebirth the purpose? The purpose. Verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, in the Bible, you've got to get these three Ps. What, what is first fruits all about? What do, you, what do you mean, Jeff? You and me, it might sound a little bit foreign to the Jewish audience, the early Jewish believers. They knew their Old Testament. This, this would ring every bell in their mind. They knew the first fruits. The first P is it's a picture. 
What do you mean? James is saying to the believers, early Jewish church, you're believing in Jesus. He saved you. He's rebirthed you. This is a picture. It's a foretaste. It's a little glimpse of the larger harvest of the Gentiles that will come in a little bit later on. It's not only a picture. Second, it also symbolizes the possession. Why? Because God said the first fruits are mine. They're mine. God's prized possession was the first fruits. The beloved to God as what is his. They are loved. They are possessed. They are owned by God. This is Deuteronomy 18 verse 4. Bring the first fruits because they're mine, God said, from your fields even. I love Revelation 14, verse 4, when the 144,000 Jews will come to faith in the tribulation period, we read about them that they are first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They are possessed. They are owned by God and by the Lamb as they follow Him. It's a picture. It's a possession. Third, it's also a promise. This is so, so great. It's a promise. Why? Because as you are regenerated, there's a promise that there's a full harvest to come. What's the harvest? Worldwide restoration, global consummation, no more sin, no more pain, no more iniquity, no more temptation. Romans 8 says we are first fruits now awaiting with all creation. We are awaiting the full redemption of our bodies. Christian. You're a first fruit to God. You're owned by him. And you're a first fruit to God because there's a promise that there's a full harvest coming. There's a full redemption coming one day. Number six in our outline here on understanding regeneration. Excuses. There's people that make excuses. I'm going to raise some of them because you must be born again. Jesus said in John chapter 3, it is necessary. You must be born again. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. If a man is not born again, he will never see the kingdom of God. So what are excuses that people might make To not be born again. Number one, I love my sin. I love my sin. And if you're not born again, you do love your sin. If you're not born again, you love yourself. If you're not born again, you love living for King Self. And there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to hell. I hear this every every week. Second excuse, I'm good. I'm good. Can I give you a gospel track? No, 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 I'm good. Can I give you the good news of Jesus Christ? No, I'm good. God says you're not. With all due respect, you're not. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There's none good, not even one, Romans 3 9 to 20 makes that very clear. 
I'm good. I don't need this. A third excuse, I'll get to it later. Recently, I was talking with someone. Yeah, I've got questions and I'll, you know, I'll get to this at a later point. I'll come to this at a later point. And I said, no. In hell, it'll be too late. I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. But you're not guaranteed later. Or number four, we hear this sometimes, even with many churchgoers. I don't need to be born again. I have a strong faith. I have a strong faith. You might have a strong faith, but if God hasn't opened your heart, you have a strong faith in yourself. Or in the God that you've created. Or number five, another excuse. I hang with good people. I hang with good people. I'm a churchgoer. I hang out with churchgoers. I go to a care group with churchgoers. But they can't take you to heaven. This is going to become much more real for us in these days. Number six, I don't want to be rejected as that weird Christian. They're, they're, they're all those bigots. They're all those haters. They're, they're intolerant. They don't, they don't call me by my preferred pronoun. They keep talking about God and being made in the image of God. I don't want to be rejected like them. Another excuse that someone might say, I made a decision in my own free will and I'm fine to live how I want. We call that easy believism. Those that think that they're okay with God, but their heart hasn't been changed, so they don't live for God, and so their sinful, wicked life betrays their empty profession. I can live how I want. If there's anyone here, or hearing or listening, and there's any excuse that is rising in your heart and mind, to why you must come to Christ. Yeah, I'll do that later. Yeah, I don't need that. Listen to what Jesus said. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. The story is told of Augustine in the fourth century, the early church theologian and father. Augustine was a wicked man. Of course, his mother was praying for him. You know the story. Augustine was a wicked man. He was a worldly man. He lived for himself and the pleasures and sexual lusts of the world. And Augustine was, was living with a woman when the Lord converted him. He got up and left and walked down the street. And the story goes, as Augustine was walking down the street, the woman that he was living with called out to him, Augustine! He didn't answer. He just kept walking. And she said again, Augustine, it's me. But he didn't answer. And she called out and she called out and she called out. No answer. Finally, she sprinted to him and she grabbed a hold of him and she turned him around and she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine said, I know, but it's no longer I. can't live with you anymore. That's what the new birth does. 
I'm not who I once was. John Newton said this, and he put it in the familiar poetic words, I once was blind, but now I see. Regeneration is the transformation of your nature. You can say, I'm not, by the grace of God, I'm not who I once was. And if you are who you've always been, you can be assured you don't know the gift of regeneration yet. In justification, your legal status has changed, right? The heavenly judge throws down the gavel and says, you're righteous, you're forgiven, you're not guilty. That's justification. In adoption, your relational status has changed. You're no longer in the family of Satan, you're now in the family of God. But in regeneration, your whole nature is radically changed. I'm a new person. I'm not who I once was. I'm made new. I'm transformed. Has God done that work in you? Has he done that work in you? Has he changed your heart? The mark of regeneration is obedience. The mark of regen. How do I know? It's obedience. How do we know that? The whole rest of the book of James is going to give us commands on how to live. The new nature can't live like it once did because it's new. It's divine. You've got God living in you. Oh, if you're here today and you're unchanged, if you're here today and you've never been born again, if you're here today and you can live patterns of sin in your life without change and you reflect honestly in your heart and you think, I don't think I've been changed. Don't leave here until you cry out to God. Cry out to God to save you. Now, I want to end with this. James 1, verse 2, consider it all joy. Well, how in the world am I going to do that when I encounter trials? And and, and verse 5, I need wisdom to go through trials and I need faith, but how am I going to get that? We we read in verse 9, I need to be a humble man. Verse 10, I can't be prideful. Verse 11, I can't pursue the riches of this world. Verse 12, how am I going to persevere under trial? How how am I going to do that? When the Lord is refining me, how am I going to do this? What about temptation? And when temptation comes from my own desires, how do I resist temptation? Answer, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting shadow or variation. In the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. How do I do this? And just a little sneak peek, what are we going to look at next week? Look at verse 
19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And what are we going to look at next week? Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror but doesn't make any changes. So how are we going to obey God? How are we going to be doers of the word? How are we going to live a life for the glory of God? Answer, God regenerates by his power. And that's what plugs you into the power source. So you can shine for the glory of God even when you're going through trials in life. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the word that you have given. Clear and sufficient and powerful. May you, by your grace, give us thankfulness and worship-filled hearts because of the new life that you have given to us. Oh, how we worship and praise you. All glory be to you, O God. All glory be to you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.